Welcome back. This week's conversation is with Connor Shaw. Connor is a former University of South Carolina and NFL quarterback, but throughout the entire conversation, you'll start to learn that what is most important to Connor is his family, his wife, his kids, his parents, his siblings, and that's what he cares about the most. And in the conversation, we talked through his competitive childhood with his siblings, trying to decide what position to play and landing on quarterback the early years at the University of South Carolina. And the conversation that I love the most is when we start to talk about his family, the first moment he met his wife, Molly, his kids, all that sort of stuff, faith, God. Um, Connor is an incredible guy, somebody that I've looked up to, to for a long time, just the person that he is. Um, he's a great role model, and I hope you'll enjoy the conversation. Before we get into the conversation with Connor, we got to talk about Engineered Sleep. Engineered Sleep is an amazing mattress uh, manufacturer, and they have been producing and making mattresses called the Epic Mattress, where they can customize the mattress and almost make it any size. They've been sending these mattresses to Hollywood stars, to some of the biggest names in sports all over the world. And I think their biggest mattress was actually 12 foot by 12 foot, and they sent it to a Hollywood home in California. But reach out to the team and Engineered Sleep. Make sure to mention the podcast or use promo code LIVE10, L-I-V-E-10, and you'll get 10% off your order. Their website is Engineered Sleep. Dot com. Their showroom is in Greenville, South Carolina, so you can go visit them at their showroom. Either give them a call, go to their website, but no matter what, use promo code LIVE10 to get 10% off your order. And most importantly, you'll start sleeping better and performing better on a daily basis. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Connor Shaw. Connor, what's up, man? I'm glad we were able to do this in person. First off, how you doing? Doing great. Doing great. It was my it's my first trip back to Greenville since we moved from Greenville a couple of years ago. So pretty neat to see how much it's grown within mm-hmm. two years too. But Molly and I, my wife, we miss Greenville, so it's good to be back and appreciate you having me on, man. Yeah, I remember when you moved to Greenville, I was like, Hell yeah. We got Connor Shaw's now at <laughs> Greenvillian. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> In the midst of uh quote unquote Tiger Country. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Especially now. <laughs> Which I mean they're not all bad, but never losing to them helped me out living here a little bit easier. Just kind of smile and wave. <laughs> that is right. And uh, like you said, it is Tiger Country more now than ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say when you were in your years at Carolina and obviously having a lot of success, I didn't see nearly as many Clemson flags. <laughs> That's usually how it works. We're trying to get back to those days. <laughs> and you know what? I think we will. And I do want to talk about your football career some, obviously. Yeah. But I do, I don't know if people know about your childhood as much. And yeah. I think your dad was a coach and things of that nature. So what was life like as a child and your dad being a coach? Super competitive. Raised by two coaches, really. Uh, my mom was a basketball coach. Dad, obviously a football coach, was a head coach since I was born, um, which was really neat for me and my brother and my sister to be around that just competitive nature in the household, but also going to practices. Mm-hmm. Like those high school players, a lot of them never played college ball. The more, obviously, the majority they may have had one, but in my eyes back then, they were all my heroes, man. 
being in the locker room, being around those guys, understanding what team sports can do. I learned that at a very young age, the discipline, the commitment, you know, uh, what it takes to play at a high level consistently. I got that from my father. Um, Mom had to play referee sometimes in the house. I mean, I'm telling you, we competed against everything. I'm, who could buckle the seatbelt faster in, in the car? Uh, but it was – mom played basketball in North Georgia. Dad played football at Western Carolina. My older brother uh, played quarterback at Georgia Southern. Little sister played collegiate tennis. So I, I think we all just kind of channeled everything that we knew from a young age in sports. Do you? Was it always football growing up? No, it wasn't. And I think uh, I give credit to my dad on this because now it feels like every sport, their parents are like, hey, we, we need to invest mm-hmm. you around. Yep. Hey, you basketball, travel baseball. Hey, football, let's go find us a trainer. Yeah. And, you know, even when I was at Carolina recruiting, it was like, man, just let alone the competitive, what, whatever your goals are on the field, from a social aspect, it is healthy for your child to play different things, mm-hmm. to be exposed to different things. And so I, my first love was basketball. Nice, man. I, I was that... <laughs> play really hard defense and spot up shooter <laughs> let's go <laughs> uh, and so basketball was the first love same for my older brother and my little sister played basketball and and then played baseball love baseball love doing the travel baseball in the summer for my buddies and then uh you know when and played football but really that freshman when the friday night lights come on mm-hmm. as a freshman that's when my whole that paradigm shift for me. (laughs) Football's a little different. (laughs) But as a child, and I do think there's so many lessons kids can learn, like being in sports, being in those environments. Do you have any lessons you think you picked up early on in your life from being in those competitive sports, being on different teams, interacting with different players? Yeah, I do. Yeah, team sports are awesome because, number one, you embrace your role. Like no one's the same. You got different positions, obviously, mm-hmm. but you have different personalities. And so working together, embracing your role to figure out how can I do my job and how that job complements someone else's job. So, you know, obviously you copy and paste in anything else you do in life. That's mm-hmm. team sports. Um, I think the biggest thing, though, is through sports, you are like going to face failure every day. You're going to have bad reps. You're going to have bad practices. You're going to have bad games, bad decisions. Mm-hmm. And so it's just through those moments of failures, what you learn from it. And then you quickly learn that the only thing I can do now is how do I respond? Yeah. And playing the position that I played at quarterback like that, you have to interceptions are going to happen. You're going to make bad decisions. Obviously a lot rides on the quarterback, the production of the offense, Mm -hmm. production of the team leadership. So you can put a lot of pressure on yourself, but it's um, you have to learn to give yourself grace too. So you can respond from some of the stuff you go through. Uh, and then, you know, culture. Culture matters in everything that we do. And so whatever is being taught from your head coach, you know, from a leadership standpoint and how we do things, the approach, the core values, the chemistry within the locker room, that's pretty neat too. And that leads to success on the field. But those three things really from, from team sports and being in a, in a household of two coaches – you know, we have a pretty good understanding of. Very true. And you mentioned grace. I think that is one of the greatest life lessons somebody can have is like give themselves a little grace in whatever they're doing. And I've had some like new moms I work with and stuff. And 
I remember my mom, she told me like a great piece of advice is like to give yourself grace. Like if you're a new parent or you're going through something new, like just to realize you're doing something, you know, you're doing it at the best of your ability. Give yourself some grace and and continue to move forward. I think it's the hardest thing in the world for people to do. Yeah. Is to give themselves grace because I think it's human nature to be perfectionist in everything that we do. And we want to provide value. How can I provide value in this situation? Uh, nowadays perception is at an all-time high so putting on to uh i call it attention seekers people pleasers Mm -hmm. like that's very dangerous now but i think you can get lost in the the rat race of of just trying to climb and trying to be perfect at everything we do hey yeah i gotta be a perfect father i gotta be a perfect perfect husband whatever my career is and molly and i will sit at time sit at home sometimes we're like you know, if, if Decker, my son, or, or Mila, you know, if they acted out of character, you know, we immediately go back to ourselves and say, okay, what are we doing wrong? <laughs> How can we do better or whatever? And, and we just have to remember to give ourselves grace, man. Yeah. And, and um, but it is difficult. It is. Did you, growing up, being underneath your dad as your coach in those <clears throat> high school years, did you ever feel pressure from your dad being the coach or from the community that your dad was the coach? Neither. I think I was always my own biggest critic and I, the standards that I had for myself and the, 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 the goals that I had for myself, they were probably a little bit unrealistic, even in my own father's eyes. Mm-hmm. I think my father more focused on the development who who I was as a player and as a person, obviously, but I was the one that was had those high goals, and I got a lot of that from my older brother. I mean, learned a lot from him, and he had high, high goals. And so I would weigh myself against him, learn from him, want to be better than him. <laughs> and that was kind of the blueprint for me. How much older was he? Two years older. Very close still. He's a high school coach down in South Georgia at Wayne County. And uh, But, yeah, I didn't feel the pressure from my dad. He, he never, like even going, growing up playing in youth leagues and rec ball, he wanted me to hear a different voice. He wasn't mm-hmm. my coach in those in in those youth leagues and rec leagues, uh, and then, you know. But the the other side of that sword is have a bad practice in high school, have a bad game, whatever. You don't leave it <laughs> on the field; it comes home with you, and that's what I mean. Sometimes mom played referee in the house. Yeah. Uh, but there was also really cool moments of my dad. I would stay awake late Friday nights after. Uh, after games, he would stay with the staff to to get the film and all that, and it would be one o'clock in the morning, and I would stay up, and he'd get home, and we would just watch the game together as like father mm-hmm. son, not coach quarterback, and those moments were really cool. Um, but but yeah, I never felt the pressure that I put on myself sometimes was a lot, <laughs> a lot heavier than the pressure sometimes from anyone else for sure. And that pressure you put on yourself weighs heavier than almost any other pressure, totally. especially if you're not talking about it to yeah. people. Because that can really weigh super heavy. Yep. Was there a time, when did you realize, hey, I think I can go play in college? Or did you um, always expect that? No, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> I expect, I mean, again, I had goals to do that. Um, I, I expected myself to have a chance to go play college ball. But really, I was so focused in the moment because I wanted to do so well in that moment that I really didn't look at, okay, my freshman year, I didn't look at, okay, what's going to happen my sophomore, junior, senior year, and who's going to recruit me and where I wanted to go play. It was just, okay, I want to go ball on Friday nights. Yeah. 
you know, I wanted to practice well and, and, and compete the best that I can and all that stuff will take care of itself. I really truly had that mindset. Um, played receiver my freshman, sophomore year. Loved it. Played a little free safety. Didn't want to play quarterback. <laughs> I, did. I wanted nothing to do with playing quarterback. My, my brother was my quarterback. And so we had, Oh, that makes sense. It was so cool. I mean, we would have these hidden signals and run on a post route Dang, and just that's carving people up. It was awesome. And, uh, but so my going into my junior year, my dad, who was my head coach at the time, he was like, okay, we're going to move you to quarterback. I was like, no, you're not. Dad, <laughs> dad I love receiver safety. I was just an 1100 yard receiver. I'm, you know, I got a couple of scholarship offers that wide receiver. I was going to be that guy. And, and then, you know, do the growing pains of being a, uh, the growing pains of being a quarterback, getting the ball in your hand every play. You know, I settled into that role, but yeah. What was your size then? Six foot, 175 at receiver. Uh, I think going into my senior year, I was probably around that 190 mark. And mobile, uh, still played a little safety my senior year. It was just, I think the biggest compliment you can give someone is, are they a football player? I don't care what position. Are they a ball player? You know, do they have a nose for the ball? Can you put them in different positions? Do they just have great awareness Mm -hmm. of the game? And I, I think I was so competitive that, I really never saw myself as this quarterback. I was like, how can we move the chains? How can we stay on the field? How can, yeah. how, can, how, can, how can we score more points than the other team? I love to think about, and this is maybe a skewed way I look at athletes, but I love to think if you can play almost like any position on the field, right? Like I was a big soccer player, but I knew I could bring value. We talked about trying to bring value, right? But like mm-hmm. I can play left wing. I can play right back. I can play right wing. So like, Hopefully, wherever I could contribute for the team, yeah, like could be wherever we kind of needed it. Totally, um, which I think is a great compliment as an athlete, which I took a lot of pride in. It sounds like that's kind of you took some pride in that as well. Yeah, it was just carrying the mindset of 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 how can I make our team better. Mm-hmm. Period. Just if you just dummy it down to the most simplest form is how where can I be put on this roster where we can. It's going to help us win. <laughs> and yeah. quarterback sometimes was the right spot. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, with the more you play at quarterback and the more you grow and the more you take on a leadership and take ownership of the team, then that becomes um, pretty special, too. Yeah. To, to be in that type of type of role and, and try to motivate some of your players and try to put them in the right position sometimes, which only comes from playing, playing a position and playing the game a long time of certain things you're exposed to. But... Yeah, playing quarterback was a special deal. How hard, was, hardest, hardest position to play in all, all sports, in my opinion. And could be the most important for yeah. the team. Yeah. Uh, for the team's success. I mean, you can honestly take the team to the next level depending on the quarterback play. Was there a player you looked up to in football, not in football, growing up? Growing up, um, my brother. Seriously, my brother, I think it was a... That's really cool. Yeah, I just with him every single day. Um, so, so my brother, I grew up a big Florida Gator fan, big coach Spurrier fan. I think because of my dad being a coach, I was really aware of Mm -hmm. the coaching side of things and can't help but to notice coach Spurrier's antics on the sideline and how he, (laughs) you know, would challenge his players and really hard on his players, but also knew how to get the most out of them. Super competitive. He did it at every level as a player and a coach. Um, and then in college, looking up to someone, um, TJ Johnson was my roommate, great person. Uh, I graduated early, 
in high school so I could roll in spring ball at South Carolina. So I came in January of 2010. Didn't know anybody. I was the only person in my class that, that came in early at that time. Now everyone does it. New, yeah. Yeah. But they put me with TJ Johnson and TJ was just, he loved the Lord, loved his family, loved ball, loved hunting. He'd keep me up, <laughs> keep me up with these darn turkey calls that he made. But it was so good for me to learn from him and how he approached certain things. So he was a source of like example. I'm a huge believer in, of, Maybe not mentors, but great examples, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so TJ and then someone who I still look up to and reach out to is Josh McCown. He was the played 17 years or something like legend. that. Legend, man. And played for a lot of teams, but really took the, the ownership of a, how can I groom younger quarterbacks. He mm -hmm. was there with Johnny Manziel and I in Cleveland. Um, he would... He just had a great level of perspective and saw the game differently than a lot of people. Um, he used it sort of as, as a ministry, but as a father figure, as a, as a friend, as a brother sometimes. So, you know, my older brother, TJ and Josh had pretty great influences in my life through sports. How did you feel? <clears throat> and I'm thinking obviously through the recruiting process, I know you had a good many scholarship offers, but when South Carolina offered with coach Spurrier there, was it pretty immediate? Yeah, it was. I think he offered uh, like February. I committed in April at the spring game. I knew once he came and offered that that was going to be the place I, I wanted to go. Didn't know much about the University of South Carolina. Um, wasn't a huge fan in high school of any team. I just was so focused on what we had going on. Uh, but, you know, Coach Spurrier, obviously very challenging for his quarterbacks and my father was very was the same way and I'm the type that I respond by that type of coaching got it and I knew that he wouldn't ask me to do anything that he didn't do but also that I couldn't do mm -hmm. and so it was just trying to find ways to get me there got it and sometimes it was you know <laughs> these sarcastic little comments that would just twist the knife and sometimes it was a little you know <clears throat> pat on the butt and was like good job Connor and yeah, so he, he knew how to get the most out of his personnel. How did you feel as a leader going into that, going into South Carolina? I don't think I've ever looked at anything as a leader. I really don't. I mean, leadership is so – you have so many leadership seminars and people want to be leadership. And, and, and on a team, you preach, we need more leaders, we need more <laughs> leaders. And you do need more leaders. But I've always carried the approach of like, what's my job? How do I approach it consistently? Mm -hmm. What are my actions? And that is going that that's going to carry influence. That's what leadership is. It's just influence. And if you do that and be consistent with that, I think people naturally gravitate to yeah. you. And then I wasn't always a vocal guy. I'm still, I don't, I don't talk a lot. I'm a man of few words. Uh, and I was very much that way in college. Um, but once you solidify yourself as someone that's consistent and people know what, what, what they're going to get from you. When you do speak, mm -hmm. people shut the hell up and they listen, Yeah, you know, and they'll, and they follow that. But I think the key word there is consistent. No matter who you are, be yourself. Like I, in my role the past two years at Carolina, you know, one of the, one of the things coach, uh, coach Shane Beamer wanted to develop throughout our team was, was leadership. And sometimes, you know, young kids or whoever can think of leadership. Well, I got to just bark. I got to, Hey, man, you're not doing the right thing. Or, hey, good job. And it's just a lot of talking, a lot of chirping. And really, it's like you can't lead anyone well until you lead yourself well. Yep. So investing in that, all the other stuff comes. Yeah, and <clears throat> I think back at your time at Carolina, and I was there for the first few years. And 
reflecting on what you just said, you were never like super in the media. And we are getting some social media then, but it's still early on. But all you did was really perform on the field. And over time, as you continue to perform on the field, you develop as a leader. And honestly, the community of the Gamecocks like looked at you as a leader. And it looks like you got there by leading from example. Yeah, I think leading by example, uh, those leadership moments for other people, they just naturally come. Mm-hmm. You're going to be put in certain situations where you're going to be in a, in a scenario to lead. To, sh- to shepherd other people. Maybe it's as a veteran, once you solidify yourself and you see a young kid come in a locker room and you introduce yourself and you try to be an example for him. But yeah, I think it's a lot, do as I do, not do as I say. And my, my thing now as a parent is I can sit down Decker after he comes home from school or if he's not listening to mom or dad and I can give him a two minute, five minute, 10 minute, just dissertation of, here's why we shouldn't do things son here's why i want you to listen to mom and dad and give him all the reasons why and at the end of the day he is going to do as i do mm-hmm. they we are the greatest examples of their life and so everything that i look at now i can't help myself but see the parallels of parenting children uh but it's examples yeah there was uh i guess early on in your career and into your career at carolina you were back going back and forth with steven garcia and at some point you and Garcia were switching in and out. Uh, was there ever a time where you got down on yourself or you got discouraged or how'd you find a way to like pick yourself up and continue to go through that? Yeah. Outside of Steven, and I have a good relationship with Steven and had a great level of respect for him. Really talented, great player. And people love Steven. Yeah. Our, our team loves Steven. They would go over to Steven's house and Steven cared about his teammates. He was an awesome teammate. Great for me. For someone coming in who was this like, Oh, you know, Connor's coming in. He's going to compete for the job. Mm-hmm. Steven was never bad to me. He was always like fun, goofy at times, competitive, <laughs> but it was, there was never any friction there. Mm-hmm. Both competitors and we yeah. did what we did, but never any <clears throat> friction. Um, but yeah, there was moments my freshman year and even my sophomore year uh, that I guess the first one that comes to mind was Going into my sophomore year, this would be uh, Steven's senior year. I started against East Carolina in the first game of the year. I had a really great camp, and, and Coach brought Steven and I in and said, hey, Connor's going to take this. He's going to play the first quarter. Steven, you'll have the rest of the game. And I don't know if I would have probably played, probably played better in the first quarter. I may have stuck in. I don't know. Um, but after that game, like, I, you know, let him down, fumbled on the 10-yard line, and missed a post route to Alshon. And after that game – Steven was a starter moving forward. And I was just, I just remember like, gosh, I blew my opportunity. Mm-hmm. Like that was my chance. I had a great, had so, put so much time in the offseason, put so much time during camp, you know, earned that starting job and then sort of blew it in my mind. And then opportunities came later. But as we said earlier, it was trying to filter that self negative talk and like give yourself some grace and yeah. you're going to have practice the next Monday. And let's grow from this. What was um, the moment where you overtook and gained that starting role? It was going into the Kentucky game in 2011. And, and our offense had was very inconsistent. We were finding ways to win games. Um, had some turnovers leading up to the, to the Kentucky game. It was the game before was, was Auburn. We were marching down on a two-minute mm-hmm. two drill. and I remember that. Yeah, yeah, and just ran out of time. And there was some frustration after that game. And, and Coach Burrier told me on that Sunday uh, that I was going to start. 
And it was my first time where he told me in advance, going into East Carolina, he sat us down on a Thursday. Might have been a Friday. You know? And <laughs> Here you go, kid. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I guess my preparation wasn't any different going into it, but it was nice to know on a Sunday that I was going to be the guy so I could really digest it, go into that Monday through Friday of prep. And I'm the type where I can't have a bad week of practice and have the confidence to go play well on Saturday. Mm-hmm. I was the guy that I needed to practice well. I needed to – you know, slowly peak through the week. Mm-hmm. And that way I, I feel good about going into Saturday, just psychologically. Um, but yeah, that so going into Kentucky game and we, we beat a, not a very good Kentucky team, but it was, uh, it was at home. Uh, it was, I think Alshon had three touchdowns and, <laughs> you know, we threw for over 300 yards and it was one of the, one of South Carolina's highest productive games ever in the mm-hmm. SEC. And so that just gave a lot of, you know, affirmation of myself and confidence. And it was cool to see all the other players kind of rally around me and um, and move forward throughout the season. Looking back, and I mean, honestly, fast forward to the next few years at Carolina, you go on to never lose at Williams-Brice Stadium, have a ton of awesome victories. Looking back, I mean, you got to play with some incredible players alongside you defensively and offensively. Um, what were some of your favorite moments with the offense that year with players? Like who did you end up looking up to on your offensive side of the ball? Yeah, we did not have a short of a good, good players. Uh, <laughs> Unbelievable know. defense too. Oh really. my God, I think 10 of 11 were drafted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, to comment on that real quick, I mean, I always get asked about, hey man, y'all had, y'all had great players on your, on your roster and that's why y'all are so good, obviously. But you go look around the SEC – you better have good players. Yeah. You better have those caliber players because LSU does, Georgia does, Florida does, like those Alabama does. Auburn those are does, to be yeah. in contention. Like you got to have good players. And and we also had great people. I tell people all the time that we won more games long before we ever stepped on foot on a football field because of how we gelled in the locker room. Mm-hmm. And that's just real. I mean, it was a lot of those guys rendezvous before they committed, the DJs, the Stefans, the Devontes, um, Marcus, like they would all, they all got together and said, Hey, let's in state guys, let's go change our state, yeah. man. And so the relationships, even before they got on campus and how we fed off each other, it, it, it was a great, uh, culture, player led culture within the locker room. So when we got there in 2010, there was already a veteran leadership in mm-hmm. place. The foundation has been built. People don't talk about 0809 a yep. whole lot. But there was a lot happening in 0809 that allowed 10, 11, 12, 13 to have the success that we had because of those type people. Yeah. You know, and then, yeah, players like I tell I told a bunch of the the players when I when Will Muschamp hired me in 2020 because I'd get asked what was the difference now that you've seen what you see sure. here and currently and during practice. Trying to bring these that are, back. Yeah. And some of the players were asking these questions and I would say, you know, it was it was great player led ownership ownership and culture and at practices when I was a player none of the you didn't hear a lot from the coaches because the players were chirping and so competitive I mean you had Alshon and Stefan going against each other every rep in red zone yeah. throwing routes on air you had DJ coming down going against Ace Sanders and Bruce Ellington baby and, Bruce yeah man we had it was competitive and we you get better through that. Mm-hmm. And even in practices, it was, you know, Coach Spurrier was a little bit more laid back and a slower pace at times. But you can do that when you're getting the most out of the, mm-hmm. the reps that you're getting. You know, we didn't have two and a half hour practices. We had hour 45 minute practices because in every rep, 
it was good on good. It was starters versus starters, and we were getting after each other. Do you have a favorite game at the university? I think or moment. I think uh, yeah, definitely moment. Two, two moments, probably the same games. Uh, 2012 versus Georgia, the 35-7 beat down on you know college game day and night game. Yeah. Williams Bryce, I still think it's the loudest Willie B has ever been. And the moment in that game was Ace Ace's punt return. Yeah, it was like <laughs> it was awesome because normally when you have that type of eruption in the stadium. It's because we just scored an offensive touchdown, mm-hmm. just do a pass, and sometimes I like filter that out. You're in such a in a zone, but for this, I was on the sideline and I was watching Ace, you know, make people look like fools, and that poor kid who dove from the ten yard line when Ace was already, you know, seven eight yards in front of him, <laughs> and just seeing the place go off was really really cool. Uh, there was a couple of good moments from Clowney that game too. Yeah. Aaron Murray didn't stand a chance, man. I remember the tackle, that famous picture when the tackle tried to cut JD and he jumped over him and he was just in midair hovering. And you can see Aaron Murray's eyes are like just huge, <laughs> like deer in the headlight. Uh, so that's a, that was a great game and a great moment. And then 2013 versus Clemson, it was um, senior night, which was special. Cap five years in a row, mm-hmm. special. And then 18-0 and 0 at home. Was yeah, pretty was pretty cool to to go out because we talked about a lot within our class was it's important for us to to win at home. Mm-hmm. Will it be our house? We're not going to drop one at home. We had a great level of pride in our house, and so it was really cool to finish that way. Did you ever feel nerves going into these big games or any game? Every every game, which I think is healthy. Um, I think you build those anxieties because you're trying to in you're trying to put yourself in the game before mm-hmm. the game and you're trying to anticipate play calls and what's going to happen within that play. Sure. But then that first snap, everything kind of goes away and you get in your zone. But I tell you what, man, if for any young kid who battles like sports performance anxiety or anything like that, there's um, or a perfectionist, let go a little bit, find, find your happy place going into to <laughs> the games. Because when the, the games that I played the best, I remember just like strutting through the Gamecock walk, man. I had a great level of confidence. Some of those the Clemson game, the Georgia game, like seriously, uh, there was just a great level of peace about me. And mm-hmm. I don't know how, why I got there, why I had so much peace going in those games, but, um, and it's easier said than done, but find, find, find your place where you can just be at, be at ease. Cause you're playing a sport, man. You're playing a game. Yeah. And you're right. Once you kind of just get immersed in it, you just play totally. You you react. <clears throat> you know, you just react. I love football too because it's not paralysis by analysis. When you get on the field, yeah. things happen so quickly. Even as a quarterback, you're making split second decisions where you have to commit to it mm-hmm. and have confidence in it, and you're reacting. I was very much an instinctual player. You know, some guys like all the information so they can have. You know, that allows them to make the best decision possible. Where for me, it was get the ball in my hands. You know, if I see color. It, I progress on to the next person. I mean, it was just like instincts. Yeah, man. Is there, and you might not do this often, um, but reflecting on your abilities and like the way you played on the field, what do you think your, was your greatest attribute? Um, I think it was, I think it was probably my ability to stay on the field. And what I mean is 
if I had to break contain and go run for a first down on third yeah. and eight, that's you what. You were amazing in that, by the way. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> appreciate it. You know, it was it was funny because there were some play calls that Coach Burry would signal in, and immediately when I got the signal, I'd be like, yep, I'm running this one. I don't, I don't care. <laughs> I just didn't. Either I didn't have the confidence in that, that pass concept or, you know, I, I knew what coverage to expect on this. It's probably two-man on third and seven against Clemson. That's what he loved to do, playing some two-man. And I knew if I could get rid of the spy defender on me, then I was going to run for a little bit. But, it, yeah, it was funny. He'd call, you know, hey, Bulldog semi or seven semi plays I hated. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to act like I'm going to throw it, and I'm going to yeah. run. <laughs> the team at Engineered Sleep is going to work with you to get the me- best mattress possible for you and your family to get the best night's sleep possible. Use promo code LIVE10, and you'll get 10% off your order. So go to their website, engineeredsleep.com. Use promo code LIVE10 to get 10% off your order or you can give them a call, mention the podcast, or go visit them at their showroom in Greenville, South Carolina. But most importantly, get yourself a mattress that fits you so you sleep better at night and have more energy and more production on a daily basis. Sleep is the number one thing you can focus on for daily performance. So stop putting it on the back burner. Reach out to to the team at Engineered Sleep. Use promo code LIVE10 to get 10% off your order. And now we're back to the conversation. Uh, what was your favorite play to throw? Yeah. Alshon, throw the fade or something? Yeah. You know, um, there was probably two two plays. One was called Mills, which is a, about a 10 to 12-yard dig route. You'd see Ace or Bruce run that uh, or a tight end and then a post on top of it. So it was for it's a quarters beater, cover four beater, praying for quarters so that post could get on top of the safety. And then Steeler was basically a double post concept where if it's one high, your inside slot guy is going to cross the face of a safety, try to get him distracted. And then the outside post guy is trying to find leverage on the cornerback where he can cross face and take a, a high angle. And we were really good at that. We hit we hit um, Shaq and Bruce on the Mills. The Mills ball to Bruce in 2011 against Clemson was still probably the best pass that I threw throughout mm-hmm. my career. And then, uh, you know, plays off of plays. But, you know, speaking of concepts, I've never been around someone like Coach Berger because you have coaches that are married to their call sheet and that it's harder for them to adjust and adapt during different situations. They feel the game. You know, talk about instincts. Coach called it from the hip a lot. It was just instinctual wow. play calling. And he kept it simple. I mean, he would repeat play calls throughout the game. Uh, and he – I'd, I'd never been around. I've never been around a coach that was like, you know, screw the call sheet. I'm just going to play it by field. <laughs> he was pretty good at it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. He had a lot of experience at it too. What a, what's a story you maybe don't tell often about Spurrier, the or the one that you love? Um, probably post playing. Now I was just with him and Miss Jerry on Thursday, and obviously coaches a fiery competitor and that's the way he coached and it gave the rest of the team. We kind of adopted that competitive mindset, but what a lot of people don't know about coaches, he's an empathetic person. He will recall memories from a lot of the the players that he played that have nothing to do with on the field, like Mm -hmm. conversations that he had or where they're from or their family dynamic. Uh, He cares. And, and that to me was like a little bit enlightening because I never saw coaching that light as a player. It was very much, 
you know, love hate relationship. And, and I would take a bullet for that man. Um, so grateful for how, how he developed me, but I don't think people understand how, just how empathetic coach Spurrier is. And, and miss Jerry is a saint. Yeah. Yeah. And you do not hear that a lot about coach. No, I mean, he's, he's, he's confident. I mean, there is a little bit of ego involved, but who, mm-hmm. who doesn't have a little bit of ego involved? And yeah. someone who has, has performed and been under the spotlight as much as coach, uh, he can come off as very standoffish. And it's like, oh, he's all about coach and making these sarcastic <laughs> comments. And you know, some of it was intentional. Like some of it he would try to poke fun and stir yeah. the pot a little bit and make things fun. But it's been really cool to see a different side of coach now that I'm not a, a player and he, um, it's really neat how he can recall a lot of things and deeply cares about the, the people that he coached. Have you been able to play golf with him any? Yep. He beat me at Wood Creek last summer. <laughs> it was, he was talking shit the whole time. <laughs> How's his game right now? You know, he's got some arthritis and he's still so competitive, which I love that about him. It's tougher to see people that you love get a little bit older. Sure. Like my dad. Yeah, for sure. And so that that's hard, but it was a fun fun round of golf with him. I uh, it was a par five, and I was swinging through my shoes, and I hit it. I hit it ob, and he's like, "Did you mean to do that, Connor? Did, did you mean to do that? No, coach, I didn't. We're going into eighteen, and he's up. He's up one on me. He's up one, and I've got a chance because I smoke my driver, and I've got a pretty pretty look at an approach shot. He didn't hit his driver well. And I, my approach shot, I sliced it a little bit, and it hit a bunker right beside the green, and he stuck one tight. Just a great shot. This is the clutch person that he is. And <laughs> after I hit it in the bunker, he rolled up by me and was like, yeah, I think that'll do it. I think that was a dagger there. <laughs> I wanted to throw my club at him. <laughs> That's a funny moment. You said uh, you hit an OB. I remember I was watching a video of you and your son, and you were <laughs> he goes – Dad, like, don't hit in the waters. What's awesome about that is, like, it looks like he's talking crap, but it, it, it was, knowing Decker, it was the most sincere comment. He was really like, hey, Dad, don't forget, don't hit it in the water here. you like, I know. And I was like, that's really messed up, son. Um, all right, so you're going into the 2014 NFL draft. Do you think you're going to get drafted? <laughs> Absolutely. I felt like, especially the senior campaign that I had, 24 touchdowns to one interception, the career that I had, yeah, I thought I, I thought I deserved to get drafted. Now, talking with my agent and the three hours that I spent at the hospital at the combine, I knew that my injuries were some red flags. Sure. I knew that the style of play that I had was probably some red flags. And I knew that I had to end up in the right system for me to, mm-hmm. to stick in the NFL and to fit. Uh, and I, I think the injuries had a lot to do with with uh, with me not getting drafted. But I will say this: truly, outside of what you get for your 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 bonuses, where you're signing first round, second round, so on and so forth, mm-hmm. it truly does not matter how you get into the league. It's what you do when you when you get there, and that's a fact because there are more undrafted free agents than first and second rounders in the NFL right now. Yep. I mean, you come in and. You find someone, you have a great level of, you know, competitive edge about you and find a way to be a, a teams player, a special teams player. Or, you know, my first year, uh, my, my rookie year, I was in the pra- uh, on the practice squad the majority of that year playing safety. Played, I mean, here really? I am. I didn't know that. Yeah. So I'm, 
I'm not even sitting in every quarterback meeting. I'm, I'm playing safety and serving our offense. Um, so I, I thought I would get drafted in, in 14, but I, I feel like it was a, I ended up being where God wanted me to be and trying to accept that, that mindset as much as possible. And uh, I felt like Cleveland was, was as good as any spot for me those first two years. So my question was is gonna was gonna be once you go undrafted mm-hmm. and you end up with the Browns, how does that process work? Do you have multiple teams? Can you kind of pick and choose if yes. you have guys coming at you? Yeah, oftentimes, you know, if you're if you're a seventh round draft pick, it's great to get a call. It's great to get drafted. Yeah, but you're stuck. You got to go there. That's right. So sometimes in that situation, it's nice to have some options. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, Jacksonville had called, uh, Seattle had called. And they had just drafted Johnny in the first mm-hmm. round. And I knew with Kyle Shanahan there. Uh, Nicole, unbelievable coach. Unbelievable. Oh, unbelievable. Really enjoyed playing for him. But I knew that they were going to bend their system a little bit around Johnny's skill set and similar skill set that I had. So I knew uh, that that was probably a good landing spot for me. And it worked out off the field. My wife's grandparents live in Canton, Ohio. She was getting ready ready to have a baby, so we had some help there. Um, so it did feel like a God thing. But, uh, yeah, and and still have great relationships with with uh, Dow Loggins, who was my quarterback coach at the time there in Cleveland. Is that where you met Josh McCallum? Uh, that second year. Second year. Yep. So Josh came in that second year. It was me. The first year it was me, Brian Hoyer, and Johnny. Second year it was um, – Josh, Johnny, myself, and then Austin Davis came in. Uh, so yeah, Josh. Josh was unbelievable, man. Coach on the field, he'd be a he'd be a phenomenal head coach. I think he was rumored for some head coach job this last summer. Yeah, I think Houston was really interested in him. I think they may have interviewed him a couple of times. But man, if if that if he ever feels like that's his calling, if he gets an opportunity somewhere, man, watch out. Man, it is wild to think too. Like <clears throat> you've been able to pick a similar system like Johnny Menzel. Did you have any preconceived ideas of who Johnny was going into that team? And then how was Johnny in the locker room? Yeah, I, I've tried to form my own opinions of people after mm-hmm. having some conversations with them and being with them. And But with that said, obviously, what Johnny had went through as a player and winning the Heisman early on and, you know, the light that you saw him in sometimes in the media – it was, you know, how how is he going to fit in this locker room? How how am I going to fit uh, from a teammate in the quarterback room? What what is this dynamic going to look like? And Johnny and I hit it off. I mean, he, I roomed with him during camp. We roomed together on the road. Um, I, it was really cool to see Johnny's progression into his second year when Josh McCown was there. Mm-hmm. Grew a lot in the classroom, and and I think Johnny would be the first one to tell you that he could have made better decisions that sure. sort of got in his own way at times. But, but no, I mean, I, I appreciate Johnny for who Johnny is. And, um, but there was some dysfunction there in Cleveland for sure. I mean, what do you mean dysfunction in Cleveland? Cause I feel like you hear that all the time. Yeah. And I think it's gotten better. I would like to believe that it's gotten better since uh, 10 years ago, eight years ago, whatever that was when I was there in 14 and 15. And, you know, Jimmy Haslam was a new owner, wanted to be very hands-on. I think he was learning with the dynamic of being an owner and how that relationship is involved with the, the GM and then head coach mm-hmm. and coordinator. And I just never felt like they were all on the same page. 
there was a Friday going into a game and we're heavy 21 personnel Shanahan system, you know, two backs and one tight end. Fullbacks always involved. And we cut our fullback without Kyle knowing. Kyle came in and off the, the quarterback room, slammed his door. We're like, Kyle, why are, we, why are you so pissed? He's like, well, we just cut our fullback. So we, now we have to Dang. change personnel that we practiced all week. Yep. So examples like that. I mean, it just seemed like there was – we were leading the division at the time, 7-4, I think, with Brian. And for whatever reason, there was conviction to go to Johnny. Mm-hmm. And, you know, especially in the quarterback, that's a delicate dynamic. Man, if you're finding ways to win, yeah, you, you roll with that. And so I'm sure it's more complex from from the GM office than what how I just described it. But sometimes it doesn't have to be. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're winning games and, you know, you don't mess up that dynamic. Going <clears throat> end of 2014 – and I remember this. Uh, you get the call to start last game of the year. I think it was yeah. against the Ravens. Yep, maybe. And you play pretty darn well. Y'all are in that game. I don't know if y'all win the game. Do y'all lost twenty to ten? Um, what a cool opportunity. Uh, played solid for three quarters. Wish I had a couple of throws back, but you can say that about any game. And then fourth quarter, man. You know it was. I don't think anybody had us in that game. I mean, we had nobody. We you had, were not supposed to win. No, I don't even think it. I think the line was well in double double digits. Um, two touchdowns, maybe three touchdowns. We were down a lot. I think Joe Thomas may have been our only starter that played that game <clears throat> uh, up front. I think we were on our third center, but yeah, we were competitive, man. We found some found some plays uh, to to keep us in the game. And then Joe Flacco in the fourth quarter was like something crazy, 15 of 15. And, Dang. Yeah, <clears throat> and they kind of ran away with it. But it was it was a close game and a really cool opportunity. I remember watching that game and being like, this is the kind of straw that wins games. Like he just continues to play and battle and like find ways to make plays. And I was like, this is what the NFL needs to see right here, <laughs> man. <laughs> well, it's it really cool how the NFL has adapted from a quarterback play. And I think it's finally coordinators. I mean, because you are seeing a lot of young quarterbacks mm-hmm. step in the NFL and be highly productive. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because coordinators are now bending their system to the skill set of the player rather than making this player fit into the system that I've always had. And so you're getting these innovative coordinators that are really studying what they were good at in college and trying to implement it. The best example of that is is um, Josh Allen. Yeah. I love watching that dude play ball, he's and I love how they use him. Now, granted, he's a big joker, and he can handle some hits, but they're running quarterback power and quarterback stretch, and they're running some quarterback design runs with him, getting getting him out of the pocket, making quick decisions, and that's what he did in college. And the same could be said with Kyler Murray. Um, you know, Deshaun came in and played well, but you get mm-hmm. you had you have some younger quarterbacks that are just crushing it they are and you mentioned injuries going into the draft and i will say probably injuries were a big part of the reason you left the nfl the reason yeah yeah injuries are tough right i i mentioned i played soccer i stopped playing soccer because of some injuries and it can be tough mentally what were the times like i mean i think you went thumb injury 2015 broken legs 2016 can you what do you remember of yourself back in those times? Yeah, I'm going to even rewind it back two years before the thumb in Cleveland. So 2012, first game of the year against Vanderbilt, broke my scapula. So that was like 
the first time I've experienced <clears throat> a legitimate injury and found a way to play through that. Um, I missed the game right after against East Carolina. Dylan played well and we won and then played through the rest of the, the year with a with with that injury and then against Tennessee had a Liz Frank uh, on my foot and played the next two or three games and so then it was like like this loop of okay uh, battling through injuries how can I persevere through it how can I manage the pain how can I still play at a high level uh, and then going into my senior year got healthy and um, ha- had the torn LCL against Tennessee the game that we lost. Um, had a sublux my shoulder against Central Florida, so it just seemed like there was all no one's ever healthy in the mm-hmm. game of football. Everyone on the field's hurting somehow in some fashion. Uh, but it was trying to get over the hump and how can I get my body right for the next game, and how can I keep my psyche pretty steady through that? Yeah, because that's challenging. Uh, and could then, be the most challenging. Oh, part. I think so. I think you're right. Was pretty much healthy all my rookie year, and then. Tore my thumb in a preseason, first preseason game, second year in Cleveland. So they put me on IR. Stayed just after starting, too. Just after starting. So you get that taste in your mouth. And mm-hmm. if you're a competitor, you're like, okay, man, I got some momentum. I know what it feels like. Played pretty good. Hearing comments from Joe Thomas, like, this kid belongs in the league. And, yeah. you know, that was reassuring to hear. And so there is a great level of confidence going into the offseason and OTAs. Uh, had, had some good, really good practices during camp and then tore my thumb. So they put two pins in my thumb. I yard that year, stayed in Cleveland to rehab and help some of the quarterbacks in the room. But it was the first time where it's like, okay, I'm sidelined. I'm watching everyone else play. And that was challenging for me to not be involved whatsoever. You can sort of feel like an outcast if you're hurt. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the next year, released by Cleveland, go to Chicago, and I am, I am playing my best ball. I can say that without being arrogant. I played really well during camp, threw a couple of touchdowns against the, the Patriots during, and was battling Brian Hoyer for that backup job, uh, backing up to Jay Cutler. Going into Kansas City, uh, threw a touchdown my first drive, second drive going, marching down, scored. Um, and then the third drive, fourth and 10. I'll never forget a play call. It was dice left, 64, why God he spin. And we had man coverage. I was going to set my eyes on our little option route to the left, knowing that we had outside leverage on a crossing route. He captured inside leverage, had him completed it. My left leg was stuck in the ground, and a three technique came in a little bit later, but it's part of the game. Grabbed my shoulder pad and kind of leg whipped me, kind of came around and snapped my leg in half. And and that was a loud pop. And I can remit my immediate thought was, okay, I've had teammates before that had torn ACLs, and it sounds like a loud pop. Yeah, And so immediately I kind of was pulling around my leg, my knee, everything seemed okay. I kept following my leg and about midway on my shin, it was just completely off my body sitting the other way. Man, And it was, you know, of course the initial thought was, oh my goodness, I got to correct this. And when I corrected it, just the sharp pain. But then right after that, when I saw some of the coach, uh, coach Fox and some of the trainers come on, it was the real is the realization that I'm done. Like, I'm done playing ball. Yeah. And that was hard, man. It was hard. It was really intense rehab. I was in the uh, hospital for three nights. Um, was in a hotel bed. Couldn't get out of the hotel bed. It was during camp. So my family had just came up. Uh, my wife was pregnant with my son. Just challenging to go through that. I was in bed for the next, I felt like forever, but probably a week and a half, two weeks where I could finally get up and move. 
And then it was the second consecutive year where I'm on IR. Mm-hmm. So same things that I was going through first year just amplified. I'm feeling like an outcast. I can't prove my value. Yeah. I can't because I'm a football player. I would go speak at different FCA events in college and even in the off season of, hey, my identity is not wrapped up in football. And I was so naive to say that, <laughs> you know, until football was actually stripped away from me. I found out very quickly that I, my identity was solely tied up in, in football. Everything else was icing on the cake. I had this beautiful wife, beautiful kids, and I couldn't really appreciate that for what it is because I was always happy. My emotions relied on how productive I was as mm-hmm. a football player. And I think a lot of people go through that. Um, so that that was really, really challenging and, and put me in some dark places that year. And you can talk to my wife. Actually, I would love to hear my wife's perspective of that year um, because there was so much to be grateful for, man, so many blessings that, that I just couldn't – I couldn't appreciate. And then the next year, uh, I knew that I had to find a way to get healthy to go through OTAs in April. Mm-hmm. Or I did not ch- have a chance to stay on a roster the following year. And this, the compound fracture to my tib-fib, that's typically about a year rehab. And I, I got hurt in August and was back in March to get cleared to go through in, in April. So hustled my tail off, really relied on those trainers and doctors. Six, seven months? Yeah, about seven months. Yep. Um, Really relied on my doctors. They had a great regimen for me, committed to them, committed to my my process. And that kind of allowed me to channel some of those frustrations. And now I had a mission. Mm -hmm. I've got this soldier complex where I'll go execute it. You tell me what to do and I'll go execute it. So that's what I did. Um, And went through OTAs. Last preseason game in August uh, with Chicago. Tore my hamstring on the same leg, and it was just from muscle atrophy from the year before. Yeah. And that was the third year on IR. And that was the moment was like, all right, I'm done. And we serve a very intentional God. And I think certain things happen that you grow from. And I don't believe that God purposely makes things happen. These tragic moments happen so you can learn from it. I don't think God's that mean. Mm-hmm. really don't. I think God offers himself in tragic moments and in awesome moments. And when we accept that offering, then he has a way of, of working through us to give us a level of discernment, give us a level of peace, mm-hmm. give us a level of wisdom to learn from those moments, those tragic moments of me getting hurt, those awesome moments of having kids and a great family mm-hmm. and all that. And I, I think that third year was finally the football goggles were ripped off my face of Everything else now became in color. It was football and everything else blurred out. Mm-hmm. And this allowed me to appreciate everything else that I had in my life. It wasn't easy. It took a little bit of yeah. growing through that those times and sharpening perspective and leaning on other people. But it truly was the best thing that happened to me. What was... <clears throat> do you remember the moment where you like almost maybe gave yourself grace in that moment? Or like... We're able to exhale and breathe. Like, how did faith play a role in that? And yeah, man, I think I like to be in control. A lot of people do, and I wanted to control my environment so much. And after three years, it was finally like I'm running myself into the ground because I can't control any of this. Yeah, and it was so counterproductive. And I had no choice but to just let go. Had no choice but to to let go. So I, you know, I was done for that year on IR that last year. Went back home. We had a place in Traveler's Rest. Very quiet. Um, and for the next four months, 
it was me with my family. It was a lot of <laughs> deep freaking self-reflection and self-awareness that came from that. Figuring things out, man. Figuring out what I wanted to do next. Figuring out what does life look like without football. Just investing in other relationships. And I think I'm a very reserved person. I tend to put up walls. I have trust issues. I think that maybe that's the way I was raised or just whatever, how I got to that point. But I do think that when I do step out of that and I do have really intentional conversations with people, you find out that you have more alike with that Mm -hmm. other person than you think. And I think that's what fellowship means. I think that's what God said, hey, you are created to thrive in fellowship. And that's hard for me a lot as a lot of people. Um, But whenever you do, conversations like this, conversations like Ryan Helms I had this morning, where we're talking about family and sharing and some of the vulnerabilities that fills your cup. Mm-hmm. Like truly it makes life more enjoyable when you start to align with people that, that just care and can be real and you don't have to pretend to be someone else. <laughs> Very true. You know? Yeah. What, uh, what role did Molly have in those years, in those times? Gosh, man, I, I've, I've talked about Molly twice in some speaking engagements and I lose it. So I'm going to try not to lose it on here. <laughs> but I have so much. I wish I would just share this with her more often. Maybe pride gets in the way. I don't know. But I have so much admiration and respect for her. Um, we had our daughter when she was 21 years old, moved up, picked up our life and moved <clears throat> to Cleveland on a whim. It felt like, you know, she was pregnant going through school. Obviously, the timing wasn't what we expected, but a blessing nonetheless. And we had known each other all through, all through college. Uh, but how she navigated her life, having a kid at 21 and picking up and moving to Cleveland, you know, didn't have her parents around. We were just kind of doing the best we could, the best we knew how for each other. And then for Mila, our firstborn, and then picking up on a whim, moving to Chicago with no family help. And, and Decker was born there. And we're just trying to create this family culture and, and knowing that football, all consuming football, can take take you away took me away from my family a good Mm -hmm. bit and her having to navigate me going through the dark times of being injured and she's so she's a rock like you cannot phase that woman she is incredible and how how she's raised our kids i mean she's been at home since our firstborn and our kids are seven and five now but i see who our kids are every day and I'm constantly reminded of Molly mm-hmm. because how she has really sharpened them and grew them. And she sharpens me. And, and I think the biggest thing with Molly is she doesn't, she doesn't hold back, man. She keeps it real. Really? People are like, Connor, you're so humble. You're, you know, you go live with Molly for a week. She'll keep you humble. But she's just, I don't know, man. She's such a loving person. And, yes. and yeah. So it's Molly's amazing great. when you find a partner like that. Yeah. Um, like your whatever you want to call your best friend, your partner. Do you remember how did you and Molly meet? Oh yeah, man, vividly remember this. <laughs> I was in in high school. Uh, she transferred from a private high school into in the public school that I was in, and I was in science class, human anatomy and physiology. And I remember her walking through the door. She had a white shirt on. Her hair was a little short, and she sat in the desk in front of me. But I remember her walking through the class and I had a long time girlfriend at the time for three years. And I was like, man, who is this? <laughs> <laughs> that's Molly. Okay. That's the new girl. And we didn't, I, I pursued her and she wasn't having it. And 
she played tennis with my sister, same high school tennis team. And I graduated early, like I said, and I would come back. I was, I was a great brother for coming back to watch <laughs> my sister play tennis. <laughs> and we, man, we, we ended up, I finally got my first date, April 23rd, 2010. And we skipped prom. All the other people went to prom. I came back and we went to like P.F. Chang's. We went to go see a movie. <laughs> and we dated all, all through college. And yeah, she's a, she's a soldier, but she's awesome. What about, uh, I'm getting married in two and a half weeks. My beautiful fiance is Congratulations, in, man. Thank you. In the other room. What are some wedding or some marriage advice? Some like things that you have taken and grown from in you and you and Molly's relationship and marriage? Communication and grace. I think some people are like, oh, you got to compromise. You got to compromise. And there's compromise. There's always compromises. But I think communication and grace. You Sometimes, Molly sent me this the other day. Sometimes, you know, your spouse can get frustrated uh, for things that they're not giving you, but you haven't communicated that you need that. Mm-hmm. So I think just dialogue. Life is, gets busy. Work gets frustrating. You know, kids, school, whatever you're going through. And especially when you do have kids, you start to invest in that so much, you, you become so conscious of that, then you kind of neglect each other. And I think for Molly and I, and probably for your fiance, is you guys you all know each other so well, you can take it for granted sometimes. Mm-hmm. I can read her you know, her body language and I know what she goes through and you, you kind of, you, what comes from that is not the communication that marriages require to thrive for a long time, you know, and just being honest in that communication. There's, there's times where, you know, I don't, I don't want to tell Molly what happened or I don't want to talk about it and, Mm -hmm. or things that I don't agree with parenting style sometimes or, the, the good thing is we see a lot eye to eye. I think that's what, you, you know, you spend time with each other before you get married to know that this has a good chance of working out just naturally. But, and then grace, like giving each other grace, giving yourself grace, giving your kids grace. You know, I think now the scary thing is, is you're seeing divorce rate as such a, so prevalent. Mm-hmm. It's becoming so normalized. And I think when commun- when there's a gap of communication, you look for it in different places. And so just being the friends that you are and communicating, I think that 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 goes such a long way. And it's, it sounds so little, but just like sitting, sitting on the couch and talking before we go to bed and not throwing the TV on yeah. or, or not being on your phone <clears throat> when you're sitting away. You know, we have like for our family in our house, we have dinner at the table and we're we ask questions. We have great dialogue with our kids and stuff. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes it's like, dang, we haven't sat at a din- dinner table in 10 days or whatever. Yeah. And it's giving your grace in those moments because... Life is... Yeah, I mean, stuff happens. Mm-hmm. But it's just taking the time to, all right, babe, what's what's going on? Talk to me. And same for me. I just met with uh, Scott Creed, who is the head of schools at Northside Christian Academy. Had lunch with him. And he hit something that freaking dotted me between the eyes, man. When I walk in, my kids come and love dad. Dad, 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 dad. <laughs> and I grab Milan Decker and it's awesome. And I'll just walk by Molly. Because like we know each other and I just take yeah. it for granted. And he's like, I know your kids come in. They love you. You go straight to your wife. You kiss her. You kiss her. Let those kids see that. You know? And I'm like, man, I'm, I'm not doing a good job of that. Yeah. And so, you know, like... Y- y'all have kids one day if that's God's will and and 
it goes back to like, if you have a daughter, your daughter is going to be in a relationship one day and hopefully it'll be in a loving relationship in the same way that you love your wife mm-hmm. and then vice versa with son and that dynamic. And so you do the best you can of, of showing them what that looks like. But it's just going back to the, like that date on April 23rd, 2010, 2010 was the <laughs> best year of my life. Dude, there, there's an album by the script. Every time I hear one of those songs, it takes me back to driving three hours from Columbia to Atlanta to go see Molly. Um, staying in that, making that <clears throat> all present. Yeah. You know, with, uh, I have a few more questions and two really questions that I'm going to skip back to football for a moment because I believe this individual shares some of these qualities and these outlooks on life. And thankfully he's South Carolina's new coach. Um, Shane Beamer, I see a lot of maybe you in him. I see a lot of what I want to see leading a program in him. Um, What do you believe Beamer brings to the program, not just football, but like relationships and love and passion, that sort of thing? Well, I think football is taking – football – the football program is benefiting from who Shane is, not as a football coach, truly. How he lives his life, what he believes in, the core values – that he's trying to implement in the, in the football program now. There was a thing called team time every Friday night, and it was Coach Beamer's idea, but it was me and Derek Moore who would, who would prep for this team time. And what he wanted to do was it's just an hour of raw, vulnerable sometimes, real, some like really challenging sometimes, challenging the players, challenging coaches, calling yeah. people out. Instead of going to the movies, he wanted to just create an hour of this time. And so we, uh, we, asked, we asked Shane, was like, okay, Coach, our eight core values. I think it was seven or eight, maybe seven. And where'd you come up with these core values? And it was honesty and trust and accountability and, mm-hmm. and gratitude's a huge one. You see a great level of gratitude with coach Beamer because he's always joyful. And I think having a greater level of appreciation for things makes you more joyful in life. And you see that firsthand with him, uh, you know, appreciates people and you can see that in some of the conversations and his intentionality, but we're asking coach Beamer, where'd you get these core values? Did you get it out of a book? Did you get it out of a different coach that you coached under Spurrier, your dad, you know, Kirby Lincoln. He's like, no, this is who I want to be as a person. This is in every phase of my life. And let's take that into the football program. And now the reason why we have such great buy-in and, embodying those core values Mm -hmm. is because you see it from your leader every single day. So it's, you know, the first year with a new regime, the most difficult thing is to get the buy-in and get the culture uh, because there's brand new faces and some turn, a lot of turnover and some of the position coaches through the years. So when you see a coach that's vulnerable, that cares, that listens and embodies everything that he's trying to tell the practice, what you preach. Right. Mm -hmm. And so now the players are bought in. You're starting to see that culture become what it he wants it to be and um, where the guys can just be naturally themselves in a competitive environment and encourage each other and love each other. So Shane came at the very best time for Carolina, not just for fans, but for what those players have, you know, needed. Mm-hmm. I think what's really cool is Luke, Luke Day, the strength coach and, and – uh, Shane, they got together and decided to run a um, love language for each player on the roster. And I'm like, <laughs> what? Are, what are we doing? 
but you think about it, man. Like people respond differently. Yeah. You know, Everybody. you can't just blanket something and say, here's how we're going to treat this kid. And these mm-hmm. are the consequences for you. And like people are raised from different parents, different households, different climates, all of it. And so they invested in trying to figure out, all right, man, are you a words of affirmation? Are you a, you know, whatever. And, <laughs> but you, you can better understand your players. You can reach them a little better. You mm-hmm. know how to encourage them not how to motivate them and you foster relationships that way. Yeah. But that kind of gives you a little bit of, you know, inside scoop on who, who coach Beamer is. Yeah. And like you said, he's leading by example, man. He didn't, Yeah. this is the person he wants to be. All right. Last question. You've been super gracious with your time. What's your favorite thing to do with your family? Could be sitting in front of the, on the dinner table. Yeah, I know. Um, it's fun. It's fun. It's fun to compete with them. I mean, <laughs> Decker, we have this makeshift little bat and we'll, we'll toss it and he'll swing for the fences and Mila's getting into tennis and playing spike ball. Play, we need to get spike ball. <laughs> we had it in Greenville. We need to bring the spike ball out the closet again. Uh, you know, Molly's a competitor too. I don't know if that's my favorite moments. I think it's sometimes it's just being, like nothing to do where we're just huddled up on a couch or we're just watching a movie or reasons that playing games, me and my son and my daughter play battleship all the time. He <laughs> Again, gets, it's been around forever. <laughs> oh yeah. They, they get competitive. At, I don't know. There's just, I, I guess the answer would be moments where I tell myself and moments where we're all just, so present that could be on vacation that could be in the house that could be outside playing ball but when we're just like shutting out shutting the world out and just together and having fun in that those are those are just awesome moments well connor thank you for joining me this has been an absolute pleasure um maybe we'll do it again someday it does man it really does i tell people all the time these are the conversations that that I love so much and I enjoy. And this is why I started the podcast and um, I absolutely love it. Man, I, I enjoyed it. I don't even know how long we've been doing it, but I could do it for another two hours. So. <laughs> and I, you know, I did some research, Sam, of who you've brought on and, you know, you're just, you have thoughtful questions. You have a great level of peace about you and, you know, the people that you've had on so diverse, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Local businesses, you know, doesn't matter what status they are, just bringing on people and having good conversations, man. That's more of life should be like that. I agree. It's, I feel like people's stories are so powerful, you know, no matter where you're coming from or your background and you can relate with people on different levels and their stories. Like you said, it doesn't matter who you are. Everybody's got their story. Amen, brother. Well, thank you again. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, click subscribe on your listening platform for upcoming conversations.